Facebook, Twitter, 24-7 News, talk radio, citizen journalism, fake news, real news. Audiences are drowning in an overwhelming overload of information. Clearly, a guidepost is needed to identify what is trustworthy and a reliable source of both news and information. Season 2 of the Delaware Humanities Podcast, A Matter of Facts, delves into this topic. This year, examining more closely popular sources of news and information. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Thanks for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. Our second season of this podcast delves more deeply into a variety of popular sources of news and information. And in this episode, we turn to an information source we hear a lot about in an election year like this one, polls. They seem to appear almost nonstop at times, offering a snapshot of who's up and who's down in a race and attempting to offer insight into what issues are top of mind among the public and driving where people stand on those issues. But polls have come under some additional scrutiny after the U.S. presidential election and Brexit vote in 2016 provided surprising results, ones not necessarily foreseen by the pollsters. To help us better understand how polls operate and what we should take from them, we are joined on the podcast by Dr. David Wilson from the University of Delaware. He is a professor of political science and international relations and senior associate dean for social studies at UD. His work focuses on polls, public opinions, and political psychology, including how individuals make use of information about race, gender, and social groups to formulate the opinions they express. Dr. Wilson, thanks for being with us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. Hey, I'm happy to be here. I want to start with the current perception of polls uh, in the wake of the 2016 presidential election here and the Brexit vote uh, in the UK. Polls and pollsters took a lot of heat from pundits in the public. Um, Justified overreaction or or maybe somewhere in the middle? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, as an academic, my my first thing is that, you know, we 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 think about polls more broadly than than simply during election time periods. We look at polls to the science of surveys and data collection. So the science behind surveys found that the 2016 polls were quite accurate. That is, uh, most of them predicted that Hillary Clinton would win the popular vote in 2016, and she did win the popular vote. And they all predicted these things within uh, the margin of error pretty, pretty well. The things that didn't go so well <clears throat> were state-level polling, which doesn't happen as frequently as national-level polling. And what this, this challenge highlighted is that surveys and polls are snapshots of history. When they're used to make predictions about the future, they don't always take into consideration the random events that can take place. Uh, so, for example, uh, an investigation being opened up about Hillary Clinton in the final moments of the last election or or people making up their minds at the last minute, those kinds of things that are that are usually random can't be captured so well by polls. So the extent to which, you know, polls are were not working well or working well or accurate or not are often dependent upon noise. And that's what we saw in 2016, a lot of noise. 
So before we go any further, let's go back a little bit. Um, how long have polls been a prevalent part, not just of politics, as you mentioned, but, but just generally gauging public opinion and collecting that data in general, as, as you mentioned? And, and how much have they, they changed over time? Yeah, that's a good question as well. So polls have been around since, I would say, probably the, around the early World War II era, uh, where they were starting to be used more for elections uh, and helping the public to kind of gauge who was ahead or who was uh, behind in the election, what we call the horse race, so to speak. But the science behind polling is simply uh, statistical sampling, the notion that you don't have to drink an entire pot of soup to know whether it needs salt or not. That is, we can estimate uh, what the aggregate thinks by only talking to a few people. And that, that science has been around for uh, a century and a half almost. And it's purely a statistical method. The difference, of course, is when we look at surveys, we're collecting information from people. And the challenge with people is that they tend to sometimes not always give you the, the most forthright answer. And so uh, when you're estimating you know, who's, who one is going to vote for, you're estimating uh, whether or not you support a certain issue, sometimes people change their minds. And so if you're sampling potato chips or soup or plants in a, on a farm field, is different than when you're sampling the public. And so it's, it's kind of changed over time in how we try and get more accurate opinions out of the public. So in-person interviewing uh, via face-to-face or telephone, and now we're moving to more web uh, or what we call uh, self-administered surveys, and also thinking of new ways to, to estimate by statistics that is weighting the data so that it becomes more representative of the public. And I suppose, you know, one of the things that a lot of you know, the average person may not understand is they, they look at polls and kind of digest that information is how much the, the role of framing questions plays in polls. Um, you, you have looked at this in, in your work. Um, what can you tell us about what you've learned about the impact question framing has on the kind of responses and data that's collected? Another good question. It's something I, I, I have spent a lot of time on on the framing piece because I was always curious about um, whether the the conversations I was having were different than the conversations that were happening at a national landscape. And the one thing that often varies between the two is how we're presenting the conversation, such as, you know, if you look at me as an individual, my background, my gender, my race, my age, my appearance, when I have a conversation with someone, it may be different than someone who looks different than me. And so if, if it's not just looks and, and we're giving someone a self-administered questionnaire, maybe it's the information they have at their disposal that helps to shape their thinking. So maybe the questions that occur earlier in a survey influence how people think about a question that comes later. Or if we present uh, attitudes about healthcare policy in terms of losses versus in terms of gains, maybe people respond differently. And that's important because the only way to really assess accurate opinion is to, to assume that we're all thinking about it the same way. Uh, one more example that I've done research on is, is the sensitive subject of affirmative action, that if we, if we frame affirmative action in terms of race, people are much less supportive of it than if we frame it in terms of veterans, persons with disabilities, or gender. So if they vary across frames or who you're talking to, then it means that people don't really have a concrete or principled position on, on the, these political matters. So it's important to test out messaging 
uh, advertising, framing, uh, what we call mode effects or questionnaire effects in all of these things. They all can have an impact on opinion. And it's best practices there then to, to, to kind of do that work ahead of time and kind of get a sense before you put a poll into the field uh, to, to kind of take those factors into, into account? Yeah, some, some of that is doing really good pre-testing and uh, message testing. But another way we get around it, uh, just speaking again to the science, is by randomizing different versions of the question to different subsamples that we're talking to. So if we do a survey of 1,000 people and we have some sense that people will interpret a policy differently, then we may ask one-third of the sample a question just standalone. Like, for example, do you support uh, voter ID laws? And then another version of the question, we may say, do you support voter ID laws to prevent fraud? And then in a final uh, version is, do you support voter ID laws only if they're willing to help make elections more safe and accurate? And so we are testing the messaging and the, the uh, principal stances on these positions while we're actually doing the survey. So we can get a good estimate of support for voter ID laws, but we can also get a good estimate of how that may vary if we talk about them in a very uh, different way. Before we even get to, to how questions are framed in, in a poll, um, there's obviously also deciding what topics to ask about. Now, I'm curious, do, do pollsters uh, have a process, a methodology to, to that piece of it, or are there, are there best practices in that regard into terms of, of I guess, kind of the 30,000-foot know, look of what you're going to ask in, in a particular poll? Yeah, the, the best practice is, is usually making sure you have a diverse set of eyes on any, any uh, survey that you put in the field. And that is, uh, the more you can have people trying to understand the set of issues, the more effective uh, your survey will be. You don't have a lot of time to ask surveys. Respondents you know, are, are cooking dinner or they're bringing kids home from work or they're about to go into recreational activities. So they're not there to kind of meet your needs necessarily. They're happy to give their opinion out, but they don't want you to drag on for too long. So surveys usually last about 10 to 12 minutes. And so you can't ask everything. So you have to be really smart and think about what topics are most pressing and then thinking about, start thinking about what factors might affect response to those topics. So if you look at economic policy, for example, you may ask one or two questions about the economy, but you may think that maybe an elected official has something to do with that. So you need to ask questions about the president or your governor or your local uh, representatives. But you also may, be, may think about your own background, uh, like your, your education level or your income level, uh, your employment status, and whether those things may shape opinion. So you have to ask questions about those as well. And so if you start asking enough of those, then you don't have much room for politics. You don't have much, much room for health care or even social issues or behavioral factors and things like that. So it's important to get a good team around the table to help shape the questionnaire. And we tend to think of, in, in, the, in the social sciences, we tend to think of surveys as a social conversation. When we put a survey in the field, we're actually having a converse, conversation about democratic ideas with the public. What do you think? What is your input on some particular issue? And, and usually we can collect data on more than one issue, but it has to fit with the conversation. I want to move into you know, actually putting that, that poll into the field. And I think you've touched on a couple of these things already a bit. I want to dig a little bit deeper. Um, you know, what, what are some of the issues about 
that, that are dealt with putting a, a, a poll into the field. You mentioned kind of the time factor for people that they only have so much time. Obviously, you know, the, the technology has changed, as you mentioned earlier, in terms of, you know, nowadays, you know, it used to be you just call people's landlines. Now there's cell phones, there's texting. There's, can you talk a little bit about just, you know, what are some of maybe the, the pitfalls to, to getting that good, valid sample to, to have a poll that, that really does give you data that's useful? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's almost like um, it's almost like when's the best time to to put coats on sale, right? And and sometimes it's when when there's a good reason, such as the wind, the temperature is about to change, or or the temp, the temperature is going to change for the worse, it's going to get colder, or maybe when it's going to get better. So maybe elections are a good time to start doing more surveying. And and the thing to consider, just for example, when election surveys happen, is that, all right, everybody's thinking about it the same way. Everybody's going to put coats on sale. So how do you have a survey that uh, fits within the market of all the other surveys that are going to be active in a given time? So the the process usually means, all right, well, let's let's make sure we have a very focused and effective conversation so that when we put out a, a release or we report it in the news, the public finds it valuable. And then hopefully when we call back, they'll remember our name and they'll want to participate in the survey again. So the so one of the goals of, of good process and good surveying is building a rapport with the public and knowing when's a good time to actually field your survey. Then the other elements are how long should you stay in the field? That is, how much of a sample size do you need to make a good estimate? If a population is smaller, you don't need as large a sample size. So you have to do some statistical work to find the best fitting sample size for the study you want to do so that you can make the correct inferences. The other thing to be aware of is what public events are going on at any given time. If you ask about politics while a convention is going on and people are attending to a convention, then then some of the rhetoric uh, from the convention may spill over into the public discussion and affect people's opinions at that time as well. So you want to make sure that, you know, if you're collecting opinion, it's free of kind of all the, the noise that exists out there. That's difficult, but there, there are some ways to do it. The last thing is to think about um, what is it on the back end that you really want to say? And that means, what do you want your sample to look like? Do you need more diverse representation? Do you need to oversample young people, for example? or oversample seniors, do you need to, will that, will that mean you have to stay in the field longer to collect that additional data? Because that means you have to pay more for interviewers or more for survey time, or you may have to offer uh, respondents incentives, you know, one or $2 to participate in the study or, you know, participation in a, a gift card raffle or something to that effect. So there are all of these considerations that go into play because you're really, again, trying to get people to participate and stay engaged in the subject matter throughout. That's what the process is really designed to do. Is there any sense whether technology has made it easier or harder to, to get that, that, that sample that you're looking for? So it's, it's made it easier because you can get more sample at any particular time. So instead of worrying about calling someone at midnight, if you send them a link to a survey, uh, they can fill it out right before they go to bed with no distraction and, and the like. So it's, been, it's made it easier to kind of to get sample. The challenge is some people are more likely to use technology than others. And so you wind up having to kind of weight the data 
or, or for example, collect more information from people that are less likely to use technology so that it is more representative. The last thing you want to do is get a sample that doesn't look like the population you're trying to make an inference back to. That's bad data, and, and that happens when you haven't really kind of thought through the entirety of the process. But it's made it easier to collect more data. It just hasn't necessarily improved the quality of the sample. And that's where survey scientists are always balancing things out. Sometimes we do mixed mode surveys where some of it is phone, some of it, some of it is online. Some of it may be what we call IVR, interactive voice response, where um, you, can, you get a phone call and you can respond and it moves to the next question based on your voice. Or you can push a button that says, you know, yes or no, or I vote for this candidate or that candidate on your, on your phone. So there are different technologies you can use across modes. And then on the back end, control for that to see if there's really any problem uh, based on in-person or uh, self-administered surveying. So, so there, are, there are a lot of things that go into collecting the data the right way. But technology has kind of at least helped with the options we have. I want to talk a little bit now about, you know, kind of once you have all that data, how it's presented. And, and I feel like for most people, a lot of what they see is that top-line information presented by the media. Uh, should people be looking deeper? And if they do, what should they be looking for as they, as they dig into a poll? Another good question, uh, because uh, the, the public uh, doesn't want to deal with a lot of numbers at one time. And they don't want to be kind of deluged with with all of the findings from a survey. So typically you'll get a, a literally a top line horse race or a presidential approval right. or governor approval or support for some hot button issue about what the court should be doing or what uh, America should be doing in terms of foreign policy. So, so that's what the public can take. But what, what researchers and practitioners are looking at are correlations. So uh, I, I use the analogy uh, when, when, we, when we study the horse race to the home runs in baseball, that the horse race is like a home run. It, it, it's great. It's shiny. It's, it's brilliant. Or a slam dunk, for example. But if it doesn't predict anything, if it doesn't lead to wins, then it's not very valuable. So you can hit as many home runs as you want, but if it doesn't help your team, it doesn't gain you much. Similarly, I can present all the horse race or presidential approval questions I want, but if they're not predictive of winning an election, or they're not predictive of Congress passing the actual policy, it doesn't really help us understand. So scientists in the presentation, they're always looking at the raw data. They want to see the actual correlations and statistical relationships and patterns in the data and looking at trends over time to see if things are changing. Whereas the public just wants to kind of have the sale price, uh, to use the analogy again to the, to the coats, or, or what are the top coats that are on sale? And so what candidates are actually doing well or not? What policies are actually at the forefront of the issue spectrum or not? They don't want to know kind of the, the ins and outs of all the modeling and everything that goes behind that. So a lot of the presentation is designed to capture and keep the public's attention uh, so that when something extra comes out, they'll they'll still be kind of connected. One thing we're also seeing more now is, uh, particularly in political polling, is these poll aggregators, poll of polls, I guess, as, as some people describe them. How useful are these in, in kind of helping get a, a picture of what's going on at any given time? Yeah, they're, they're useful for stories. They're useful for, for narratives and kind of giving a different, uh, a different trajectory of, of, of the public's 
take on things because aggregators are looking across the field of all the surveys. They're not necessarily calculating how the surveys are being done or all of those details that I mentioned before, uh, self-administered, paper and pencil, um, uh, over the phone. Uh, uh, they're not taking into consideration how long the questionnaires were. They're not taking into consideration whether the, the polling firm is, is transparent in their practices or not. They're just taking the number and plotting that in a, in a larger uh, set of data. And so it's useful for, for at least telling a story about consistency and range. Uh, but statistically, they present a number of different challenges uh, that scientists have been looking at for, for years. But, and, and so there's, there's really no consensus on whether they predict much of anything uh, other than as long as you have the right bundle in your aggregation, you're okay. But, but they, they do a good job of kind of telling a story of, of where things are and where they're going. If you look at 2016, for example, they consistently showed that Hillary Clinton was ahead. They might have showed some, some tightening of the race, but the aggregation stopped roughly two weeks or so before the election. And, uh, and therefore, we did get the final two weeks. And so for changed minds, it didn't help very much. But they're good for kind of helping to shape the narrative and the story of the, the campaign. So kind of circling back to our initial question about the current perception of polls, how much faith should people put in polls? And when they see them, how can they best look at them critically? Are there things that, that they should look for that might make them skeptical of one poll over another? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a good question because what we're really talking about is faith in science. And it's almost like how much faith should we have in our medical providers um, who, who are sensibly the, the scientists of, of medicine and public health uh, as we walk the streets every day. And so you should, you should definitely put faith in the science. Uh, survey researchers who, who are known publicly as pollsters know the science of social and human behavior. They know the science of aggregating public opinion. What's important for the public is to, to understand that these are snapshots of history and, and they should always look at results with a skeptical eye, whether they support what you believe or whether you don't. And so don't use them to predict anything, but just use them with a snapshot of history. They told us something about what was happening last week. So any poll result you see today was collected, you know, yesterday at the, at the soonest. So if something changes, um, you know, you should, you should say, well, that poll result made sense, but uh, this thing did happen yesterday that changes everything. Maybe people were very worried about COVID and then they saw the football on Sunday, professional football, and their opinions are not so negative now. Maybe it's been lessened a little bit. Maybe by Thursday when numbers come out, they may have changed again. So polls are not meant to say the world is as is and it's done. They're meant to give you a snapshot of what the public thought at any given moment. And so have faith in that part of the science. But, but don't, uh, don't always use a poll to predict something. And then if it doesn't turn out that way, say, well, then the polling industry is, is bad and, and pollsters are just trying to fake things. So, so it's, it's, 
there's a science behind it, but it, it's not a perfect science for uh, predicting the future. With, with that in mind, I'm curious, just because we, I, we've seen this a little bit just in this past weekend uh, in the wake of, mm-hmm. of Justice Ginsburg's death, that there were some kind of quick polls that were done. Uh, should people be any more skeptical of something like that, that that's trying to quickly gauge an almost instant response to something that, that's just happened? Actually, that's, that's not a problem. I mean, it, the, it's better to get opinions while they're warm. The, the thing to keep in mind is that it's, it's an opinion yesterday, and any news stories that come out today may alter that opinion for tomorrow. So snapshot opinions are, are, are no different than if you're in a room with your family members, let's say five or six family members, and you all have to decide on what movie to go see. You vote, and you give your opinion. And, you know, maybe one movie wins out. Maybe it takes a couple of rounds of voting because they're tied. But a movie comes out and and it's great. Then maybe a family member reads and you're going to go, you know, three or four hours from now, a family member reads a review about the movie that it was horrible and contained gratuitous violence or something. And and you bring that back to the table and maybe opinions change. So the key thing to always uh, to remember is that, um, you know, opinions – are useful for some things. Uh, they're useful for, for, for understanding what happened in the past and then trying to, uh, to assess the value of, of, you know, whether it's a campaign or a candidate, the value or quality of the public's take on things. And finally, Dr. Wilson, we'd like to end our podcast by asking each of our guests, uh, where do you get your news on a daily basis? Uh, what are your favorite kind of go-to news sources? And specifically for you, how do you look at the poll information that, that they present to you? Wow, that's, that's another good question. Well, I, I primarily rely on, on uh, public news sources. Any public public radio source, uh, uh, PBS, C-SPANs, uh, BBC, uh, I I use public sources of of news, and and but for polling, since that's my my field of specialization in public opinion, I go directly to the sources: uh, Gallup, CNN, uh, AP, the National Opinion Research Center, uh, YouGov, various professional surveying organizations that are a part of the American Association of Public Opinion Researchers. Uh, we call it APOR. APOR has a transparency, uh, sorry, transparency initiative where people, people have to sign on to how they conduct their, their polls and their surveys and present it publicly so that good questions can be answered about the methodology and therefore uh, answer those questions in terms of, of how, uh, how much quality there is. So, so whenever I see a poll result, I make sure that all of the methodological information that uh, was tied to the survey is public and that I can go back and review it and therefore make a good determination about the quality of the findings. Dr. David Wilson, Professor of Political Science and International Relations and Senior Associate Dean for Social Studies at the University of Delaware. Thank you so much for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the A Matter of Facts podcast. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state program of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.